Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Socho in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephesdemon between Socho and Azkar. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse. He was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons and in Saul's time he was very old. Jesse's three eldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The first was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward, and every morning and evening, he took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these 10 cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. There was Saul and all the men of Israel in the Valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with a keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites have been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the man standing near him, the man standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes the disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, 
David's eldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David, can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man and he's been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he's defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he wasn't used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog? that you come at me with sticks. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcass of the Philist carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword and spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine sword and threw it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran.
Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sharim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, surely as I live, your majesty, I don't know. The king said, find out whose son this young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Epic reading and epically long reading as well. So take a breath um, after, after all that. We're back in one summer today. My name's Nathan, if we haven't met. I'm the assistant minister here at Trinity. Really good to see you today. And if you're watching online as well, good to see you. Well, all of us love a, a good underdog story, don't we? Um, think of the Wimbledon Tennis Championships. I don't know if that's happening. I'm not clued up with that, whether that's happening this summer or not. But you sort of hear a story sometimes if you're watching that, that on court number 12, Roger Federer is struggling. And it's against someone no one's ever heard of. And the, the journalists go down there, the news teams, the... The supporters go down, they start cheering off, oh, there's nobody. Can they beat Roger Federer? Can they knock him out? We love a good underdog story. Think of Leicester City a few years ago, taking on the giants of the Premier League, Chelsea, Arsenal, whoever else, and they won. They won the league. There's a whole genre of films about the underdogs taking on the, well, the big dogs. A whole genre of Hollywood films sure you've watched some maybe over this last few months of the the little person the unknown person taking on the great one the giant and defeating them in whatever that might be we love the the tension of an underdog film the suspense the the plots the subplots and David and Goliath was the gold standard when it comes to that type of story it's one of the greatest short stories in world literature and if you just went over onto Amwell Street and you asked someone, bumped into someone, David and Goliath, what does that mean for you? You might get a few blank faces, but most people would be able to say, oh, yeah, oh, it's a good one, that. You know, good old David, he beat the giant. Yeah, yeah, I like that story. They know the sort of contour, the shape of that story. But as we come to such a familiar story today, I think there's a few dangers for us. Let me just mention three. One, we think it's just for the kids upstairs. You know, Adam's already explained a little bit that that's what they'll be looking at today. And we think this is just a, well, it's just a kid's story, isn't it? You know, we could teach them a few good morals. If there's a, a bully in the playground who's taller than you, be a David, stand up to them. And, and, and yeah, you go. Mm, it's a bit more than that, isn't there? Another danger, though, maybe the second danger is, is, over familiarity even as jeremy was reading it out we think yeah, yeah we know this one <laughs> maybe we don't know the other ones samuel ones but yeah we know this story what have we possibly got to learn from it but even as it was just being read out 
Had you ever noticed the bit in verse 18 about the 10 cheeses before? Do you remember that word? That's not in the story, kids' story book Bibles, is it? David taking 10 cheeses. Um, I have to admit, that's not the main point of what we're going to learn. But there's a lot of stuff I've seen this week that I've never really seen before. And hopefully I'll bring some of that out for us. But then third danger as we come to this, I think, is the way that it's often bafflingly applied to our lives. Seems like all the sort of normal ways that we sort of handle the Bible and want to interpret it to apply it to our lives. When we come to this story, chuck it all out the window and say whatever you want, it seems to be. Maybe you've heard some of these things before. There's the, you know, I think I heard a while ago that someone taught this, looking at the five stones that David picked up. What do the five stones represent? Maybe they spell the letters of David's name. Maybe D means you've got to be devoted to God. A means you've got to be active in God's kingdom. What? Where's that come from? Or maybe the ten cheeses stand for the ten commandments. No, I don't think anyone's I don't think anyone said that. But but there's baffling applications when it comes to this story. You might have heard a sermon that said you need to be like David. What are the Goliaths in your life? Maybe illness, maybe your father-in-law, whoever it might be, and you can overcome, you can stand up to the Goliaths in your life. Maybe there's something there. But it's got to be richer. It's got to be deeper than that. So it's a story of good versus evil, light versus darkness, Jesus versus Satan. But we need God's help to understand this story well. So let me just pray for us before we jump into it. Lord, we just heard in that song a few minutes ago that we're to be people whose word is planted deep down in us. Please would it cause us to bear fruit. Open up our ears to hear, lead us in your truth. Show us Christ more than anything else we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you were with us last week, chapter 16 um, ended in Saul's court. Do you remember David was playing the harp? He's playing the lyre, it's a beautiful sleepy scene. And, and we come to chapter 17 and we're on the battlefield. There's a bit of a shift. And we're introduced to Goliath, a terrifying enemy. Verse 1 then, if you look down on your sheets there, we're introduced again to the Philistines. And as we see the name Philistines, we're supposed to go, boo, you know, the Philistines are back. We we came across them in chapter 4. There's a a few other places as well, but chapter 4, they stole the Ark of the Covenant from God's people. The Philistines have been a, a constant thorn in the side of Israel. And here they are in verse 1, in Israel's territory. Picture should come up of, of where they are uh, in photo from the modern day, the, the Valley of Elah. And you can just imagine in this photo that the Philistines on one side encamp there and Saul's army of Israel encamps on the other. You can imagine that, can't you? And if these formidable Philistines were not enough, the camera pans to Goliath for us. Gives us a close-up of this Philistine champion. Again, if it was a Hollywood movie, it would start at his feet, wouldn't it? The camera sort of starting at his feet and and going up and up his body and, and up and up and up into the sky. As we meet this Philistine champion, and he's not pretty, is he? He's not pretty. We're showing his height. This man is a Philistine machine. He is nine feet tall. Okay? 
nine feet. I was telling Micah about this story, and I said this morning, and I said, Goliath was a very tall man, and he said, like daddy? I said, no, no, we don't want to make those comparisons, but, but very, very tall. You know, if I'll be two-thirds as tall as Goliath. And it's not the sort of beanpole teenager boy who's just going through puberty and suddenly overnight shot up. No, he is he's strong as well. He's built like a tank. His armor alone would have been, if the conversions here are right, nine stone. That's like carrying Jeremy around on your back, okay? That's serious armor. Maybe Jeremy's a bit more than nine stone. But nine stone, he was strong. He was tall. And it's actually rare to have this much detail in, in a kind of Old Testament narrative about the, the armor, the weapons. It's unusual. What we're supposed to see is an impressive, intimidating man. He's got all the gear and all the idea of how to use it. But then comes his voice as well. Again, just picture yourself in that valley. And you hear a great booming voice from the other side of the, the valley, echoing a challenge, an ultimatum. Look at verse 8. We're told Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. Sometimes in the, the kids' Bibles, Goliath looks a sort of a goofy bit of an oaf, doesn't he? But here he is a terrifying enemy to God's people. He's not just a pesky neighbor, but it's a formidable threat in opposition to Israel and opposed to God. Verse 10, I don't know if you noticed that phrase when Jeremy was reading it, where he says, I defy the armies. That comes six times in the whole of this chapter. I defy, or maybe even more strongly, I scorn, I mock Israel and God. And we shouldn't lose sight here that if the Israelites lost to Goliath, it threatens the future of their nation and they're being bondage to this evil tyrant. And so God's people see his height, they see his strength, they hear his voice. And how do they react? Well, verse 11, how do they react? They're dismayed and terrified. Wouldn't you be? No one can stand up to this brute from Gath. And Goliath here is then very obviously an enemy of God and his people. But more than that, he stands for the ultimate enemy, terrifying enemy, that is Satan. The great enemy that, that if we truly saw him and we saw his work, well, we would be utterly terrified. We can't stand up to him on our own. And so if all this story is, is be bold and courageous in front of the Goliaths, the enemies, well, no, naturally we're crushed. We're overpowered by the Goliaths, the evil one. Goliath here then is a mighty champion. And so Israel needs a champion to face up against him. But the good news is that they have one, right? They've got King Saul. Asked for, that was what his name meant. 
But as we'll see, now Saul was a failing king. Saul is, is not quite the, the dimensions of Goliath, but do you remember that he in chapter 9 is head and shoulders taller than everyone else in Israel? He is their giant. He's Israel's giant. And chap, back in chapter 8, do you remember when the people asked for a king? They said, we want a king who will go out before us and fight our battles for us. And so this is King Saul's moment, right? This is what he was there for. But that inactivity and that hesitancy which has characterized his reign is shown again here. You see in verse 11, we're told that Saul, along with all the people, was dismayed and terrified as well. What's the real issue? Well, we know from the chapter before that the spirit had departed from him, but he's forgotten the Lord. All he sees across the Elar Valley as he's there is defeat. He didn't believe Hannah's song in chapter 2 that said that the Lord would give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. He didn't believe that anymore. And so when he sees young David coming before him, I don't know, how do you think he responded? Was it relief? Finally, someone after 40 days is going to stand up to this guy. Relief or, or maybe despair? It's come to this, that this boy man has come to fight Goliath instead of me. But after 40 days, well, he gives his armor to Goliath. And it's one of those great bits in the story, isn't it? He kits him up as a sort of mini Goliath, and it looks ridiculous with all this armor. It reminds me of like a, a, a kid uh, maybe going to primary school, junior school for the first day and the parents have thought, I want this uniform to last for a few years and so they, they've got a baggy jumper and the, the trousers are down on the floor scuffed along and the shoes are too big and the kid sort of falls out over the door and that's what it's like here with Goliath. It's ridiculous. Sorry, not Goliath, sorry, for, for David. See, for Saul, he thought that strength laid in military power, in the weapons of this world, not in the Lord's. And so actually in verse 38, as he, Saul is the one who should be fighting the enemy, he hands over his armor, and by doing so, he, he essentially abdicates the throne. He hands over his kingship, really, to this lad from Bethlehem. Saul thought that strength was the way to beat the terrifying enemy, yet God had other plans. And so we're introduced to David. Thirdly, a victorious champion. Verse 11, then again, as I said, the, the people and King Saul are dismayed. They're terrified by this God-defying ogre. They have no leaders, leadership. They, the future is bleak for them. And that's why those precious words in verse 12, those two words, now David. Now David are so important. They're like sun peeking through the clouds on a dark day. Now David. But actually, did you notice that the way David is introduced is, is pretty ordinary, isn't it? He's just being used by his dad, Jesse, as a sort of delivery driver. <laughs> bringing the bread, bringing the grains, bringing the ten cheeses as well. And you can, <laughs> just thinking about this, you know, his brothers are there on the front line. And suddenly David turns up on his, not on his delivery bike, but he, he turns up and... And it would be pretty, you know, his brothers are there, you know, ready to fight. 
And how embarrassing. Dad has packed a care package with cheeses and great. Oh, Dad, not now. Don't, don't do that. But here David is. He turns up. He's nothing to do with the battle at this point. And as he turns up, the ground is shaking because Goliath is shouting his usual defiance. We need to remember at this point that we've read chapter 16. They don't know about that. They don't know that that David has been anointed by Samuel, that he is full of the Spirit. We've got high hopes for him. And in verse 26, David actually, for the first time in the whole of 1 Samuel, speaks. This is what he says. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Brilliant. David here, the first time he speaks, what does he talk about? He talks about the Lord. Finally, God comes into this narrative, into the story. His chief concern is for God and God's glory. David doesn't see Israel versus the Philistines. He sees God versus the Philistines. But before we get to the famous sling and the stone, David faces opposition from others, from Eliab. That's his brother. Do you remember the bulging biceps of Eliab, the tallest of the brothers last week? And this has to be, in verse 28, one of the classic older, younger brother things that goes on that many of you will probably recognize. Verse 28, we're told that Eliab, David's eldest brother, heard him speak with the men and he burned with anger at them and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep? That's a burn, isn't it? In the wilderness. I know how conceited you are, how wicked your heart is. You came only to watch the battle. And David in that kind of, some of you recognize that younger brother way, can't I even speak? And slams the door. No, there's no door there. But it's that kind of thing, isn't it? But his brothers, they think nothing of him. They think nothing of this pesky brother, David. And then there's Saul. Opposition from him. He just sees a boy. And it's striking, isn't it, the contrast between the reigning king here, Saul, and his complete lack of faith compared to the king-elect, David, the king to come, who has complete reliance on the Lord. I should say that David's CV is impressive, isn't it? He's killed bears and lions. He's no weed, but his reliance was on the Lord. And his rescue, verse 37 brings that out, doesn't it? Did you see that? Verse 37, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. David wasn't trusting in his, his luck or his skill or his practice or his new sling that he had just ordered on Amazon. No, he was, he was trusting in the Lord. His hope came in him and his rescue. And just as a bit of a side note here, there's one thing I hadn't really noticed before this week. How many references throughout this passage to shepherding? There's a few of them. Verse 20, the flock we're told about. Verse 34, David kept his father's sheep. Verse 40, he held a shepherd's back. We'll come back to that later. But right at this point, that the narrative slows right down. And we need to notice that as he picks up those famous stones and the sling, symbols of 
or weakness. It's feeble, isn't it? Futile compared to the nine-stone armor of this man-mountain of an enemy. Imagine you're there as one of the Israelites in the valley, and you know that David's going forward, and you, really? Maybe you're there watching. You, you need to watch what goes on, but you've, you've got both your hands in front, and you're just peeking through, maybe with one eye, the other eye closed, as they go to battle. And as Goliath sees this boy coming forward, he, he curses him. It looks so uneven. Yet David shows what he's all about. And, and this really is the high point of the story. Let me read it out. It's worth reading out in full in verse 45. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I'll give you the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. And it slows down. Again, the Hollywood film would surely have some sort of rumbling double basses and cellos, maybe a lone trumpet in the distance as the battle comes together for the fight. And then, verse 49, thud. It's over so quickly, isn't it? Verse 49, reaching into his bag, taking out the stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The same stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. Do you notice when Jeremy was reading 58 verses, how much of this is the battle? One verse. Round one of the fights. Ding, 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 it's over. The first blow and the man's down. Apparently somewhere between 100 and 150 miles an hour, the stone would have flown through the air and hits Goliath. David chops his head off and the evil giant of a man is slain. Again, maybe the Israelites hear the thud and behind their hands, they look out through the slit in their finger. He's won. And they knock the cheese platter over and they run after their enemies. They've won. And Hannah's song is fulfilled. It is not by strength that one prevails, it said in chapter two. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. And we hear this and we think, oh, it's a cracking story. So what? What's this mean? That none of us are going to bump into a nine-foot giant as we walk down Upper Street tomorrow morning. This Old Testament battle, it feels so far removed from, from our lives. Well, I think a good question to ask is this. Who, who are we in the story? Who do we associate with most as we, as we hear this story being read out. Not many of us would see ourselves as Goliath, I don't think, in this story. Many of us, though, maybe would see ourselves as David, victorious in the battle. But as I look out, no offence, but I don't see the Lord's anointed king here today at Trinity. No, we're Israel in this story, the people of God. And like Israel, we are naturally dismayed 
We're terrified in the face of the enemies of Satan, sin, death. Formidable enemies that have plagued every generation of human beings on this planet. From the Garden of Eden until Islington in 2021. And like Israel, we needed a champion to fight on our behalf. See, just as their hope was this anointed King David, our exclusive hope for us lies in the person and the King, Jesus Christ. The only one able to crush those great formidable enemies of Satan and sin and death. And do you know what? In the pages of the Gospels, we see just that. It's a momentous battle, not in the Valley of Elah, but on a hill in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. As our champion defeated the enemy in one decisive, devastating blow as he died on the cross. Like David, he didn't fight with strong weapons of this world, but through what looked like weakness, what looked like foolishness. He looked like the underdog, didn't he? Yet he knew the outcome of that battle from before time began. 1 Corinthians 1 says this, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved was the power of God. So who are we in the story? Well, as the church, we are, we're Israel here, the people of God, the flock, being protected, being rescued from the enemy by our seemingly weak but mighty, victorious shepherd king. And just to push that a bit further, what's that mean this week for us, that, that these old enemies have been slain by our champion king? Well, let me just take two of them. Satan. The Bible calls him the, the father of lies, the great accuser. We need to know that he has been crushed. He's an enormous enemy. In the UK, we, we want to be a bit polite about these things, don't we? Don't we want to talk about Satan or the devil? It's a bit sort of awkward. It's a bit embarrassing. But the Bible says that he is an enormous enemy all the way from the, the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. But now at the cross, he has been defeated. It's Colossians 2, Paul puts it like this. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over these enemies by the cross. See, Satan's days are numbered. Do you know that? Revelation 12 says that one day this ancient serpent, Satan, will be forever destroyed. And so when he accuses you this week, this month, you need to know that you have faced no condemnation if you are in Christ Jesus. The champion Jesus has won the battle over Satan on your behalf. Don't need to fear Satan. He has nothing on you. Martin Luther, the, the great reformer, it was around about 500 years ago. The story goes that often when he was on his way to bed or, or trying to get to sleep at night, Satan would accuse him of, of all the sins, of all the ways that he'd let God down, of all the things he had done wrong. And he would get a, a pen and paper or a quill of paper, or paper, whatever it was, and he would write down all the things on a piece of paper that Satan was accusing him of. And he would add a few more at the bottom of the other sins he had committed. 
And he would say, look, all of these have been paid for already by the precious blood of Jesus. Satan, you have nothing on me. I don't face any condemnation because of my champion. And so when Satan whispers to you, church isn't really for someone like you. Or if you're watching at home and you think, I'm enjoying watching at home and I, and I don't really want to come back to the church building because I just meet other people and be reminded that I'm a bit of a rubbish Christian. Know that Satan, if you are in Christ, has nothing on you. But then what about death? That other great enemy. I remember encountering death uh, for myself the first time in a doctor's surgery when I was, I was just a boy, I think six or seven, and a, a man opposite me had a heart attack. He died there on, on the spot, and it was pretty traumatic for me as a, as a young kid. I didn't know the man. But he was there one minute, and he was gone the next. As Jeff mentioned that COVID-19 in India, we, we see the enemy of death. But we need to know that the greater David, Jesus Christ, through his victory on the cross, his resurrection has overcome death. In a minute, we'll sing a song that says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Eternity is won for me by heaven's eternal king. It's not to say that death doesn't sting now. It doesn't hurt now. People will know that in this room very keenly. But we need to know that death has ultimately been swallowed up in the victory of Jesus Christ. So if you're a Christian here today, enjoy the victory. This is one thing you're to remember today, that the battle's been won, it's been played out 2,000 years ago. You're on the winning side. But I do need to say as well that some here or some watching this later or, or online, maybe aren't following Jesus as, as the king. And from a place of love and concern, I, I want to show you the seriousness that, that 1 Samuel 17 shows as, of having God as an enemy, of defying him. There's no middle ground. We're, we're either benefiting from Jesus' victory over Satan, sin and death, or we're at war, war with him. We're not free from the grip of Satan on our lives or, or sin and death. It's one or the other, there's no middle grounds. Do chat to me afterwards if that's something that you want to talk to me about. Well, as we finish, World War II, um, you might be familiar that no boys in that under the age, or teenagers or girls as well, under the age of 18 were able to go and fight in World War II. You had to be 18 to enroll and go there, but there were many. 15, 16, 17-year-olds desperate to go with their dads or their uncles or, or aunties or, or mums or whatever it might have been to the war. But they had to stay behind in England, desperate to go and fight. And you can imagine them hearing maybe on the, on the wireless, on the radio, the news coming back that, yes, someone else was fighting for them and, and they had victors. They won. There was victory. When the news came that the enemy had been defeated, oh, there would have been great rejoicing. They could have enjoyed the, the benefits that came from that, the peace that came from that, the future that came from that for them. For those of us who are Christians, how much more is that the case for us? That, that our champion has, has fought the battle on our behalf. 
He's done that for us on the cross and through the resurrection, he has won the battle. And so after that, we come and we enjoy his benefits. And we enjoy that now and forevermore. It's a wonderful thing. Let me lead us in a prayer. Father God, we, we love this story. Uh, it's a great story with so much detail and, and so much for us still to grapple with and learn and, and be exposed to. Thank you that it points beyond itself to a greater champion, a greater David who was to come. More than that, thank you that we can know him and that if we've trusted in him, we can enjoy the benefits of his great victory over Satan, sin and death. Lord, for us this week, as we live our lives, as as many mundane things that we've got to deal with and do, or maybe things that we're anxious about, things that we're worried about, help us to see this big picture, this big story, and to know that we are on the winning side, that that nothing can be against us if, if we were on the side of Jesus, the great King. I pray that we would know this in his name. Amen.